0: thanks everyone so much for joining us today we've got gus simons and perry england from mcdonald miller facility solutions And we're really excited to get into a lot today about different energy aspects of buildings, of course, like all all of our other episodes, but we are also going to dive into the new Washington State clean house bill and some other great stuff. And Joining me, I also have Shelby here from the IDCL, yes. so Hello. with that, it's going to be way more fun if you both introduce yourselves with a little more information. So I think I'll, I'll pass it to you, Gus, and give, give everyone a little intro and then we'll we'll switch over to Perry.
1: Gus Simons here, I'm the CEO of McDonald Miller Facility Solutions, and I've been in the industry for forever, it seems, since I started working for Honeywell back in the 1980s. and as you probably recognize Honeywell is a control building automation supplier to this day. And I started with uh, McDonald Miller back in 1989. I've been here ever since. And it's been a great place and a great company. And I'm excited to here to chat with you all. And I am also a Coug. I graduated as an environmental science major in 1984 and spent five years in Pullman. Love Pullman and Lately, I've been able to get back there two or three times a year and hang out with the construction program. So that's me. And then Perry is with me, and he heads up our Smart Buildings Initiative here at McDonald Miller, amongst other things. So Perry, go ahead. Thanks. Thanks, Gus. Hello, everybody. Uh, Perry
2: England, Vice President of Building Performance Group here at McDonald Miller Facility Solutions. Like Gus, I've been in the industry since the mid-80s, 1985, predominantly working inside built environment. So existing buildings has been the forte of my career currently here at McDonald Miller, working with uh, our internal teams as well as our customers to get their buildings tuned up and in compliance with the most recent legislation that's been adopted by the state, which is the Clean Buildings Standard or the Clean Buildings Act.
1: And, you know, why are we all talking about making buildings work better? That's our tagline here at McDonald Miller. But there's three things going on in the industry right now. and They can get a little wrapped up and confused, but, you know, I like things simple. So I'll try to get this as clear as possible, clear as mud, right? But the three things that are going on is, one, Building automation systems—that the kind that Honeywell builds and Johnson and Siemens—and they've been doing so for decades—have gotten much more sophisticated, which is good. And you know, over these past years, building systems have gotten more sophisticated, and it takes a little more talent to make these buildings really run like an efficient race car. The other thing that's going on is that with cloud computing and your mobile phones and, and all of the power of cloud computing is that we have ability to collect a lot of data from control systems. And if you think about the difference between looking at your speedometer in a car or hooking it up to the computer system in the automotive shop, we have tons of information we can sort and collect data and trend log that allows us to know more about how to make a building really efficient. And then the third thing that's going on is that we've got this law that Perry just talked about. It says, hey, guess what? You can't kick the can down the road anymore because energy is cheap or your tenants are paying for the energy or you want to sell the building and you don't want to fix it up. It's the law. Your building needs to run at least at a minimum standard of efficiency. And I use the car analogy a lot, saying that if you have a car that runs poorly and it's blowing blue smoke. You know, people are going to know. And if you have a building that is running poorly, you may not see it. In fact, you could have your heating and cooling running at the same time. And the occupants are very comfortable, but your your energy bill would be huge. But you know what? The tenants pay the energy bill, so you don't even know that it's running poorly. But nowadays, we're going in and every building of a certain size, 20,000 feet and above, needs to report their energy efficiency rating. So those three things coming together, sophisticated systems, the ability to do more with those systems with a smart building dashboard, and the law that says you have to fix your building if it's running like crap. Well, now that's why we're here on this podcast talking about it.
0: That's a lot going on. How is that impacting you all and what you do?
1: Well, it's a big opportunity for our industry to step up and help people make it fun and easy to make their buildings run better. And it's a very exciting time. And the thing that's interesting about, and I think interesting about this podcast, is many people don't know how easy it is to get your building up and running more efficiently. They think it's a big, huge issue. It's not necessarily the case. The case is that you just have to have better tools to measure how the building is operating. So that's right in the smack of the middle of what we used years ago as a tagline for McDonald Miller, making buildings work better. So at the end of the day, whether we're designing and building a new building's mechanical system, we're coming in and fixing a problem in an existing building, we want to help that building work better. And with the stuff that Perry's doing in the building analytics, building performance side of the business, we're able to much more effectively do that in 20 years ago we wouldn't be having this conversation we'd be hunting and pecking and trying to figure out how to make that building work better now we've got some really cool tools that we can share with the building owner and they can work along with us and collaborate with us and we can make all kinds of adjustments to chilled water temperatures and condenser water temperatures and start times and run times and we can see how the building operates in different climatic conditions and adjust it to the point that sometimes we're seeing things that are Not broken, but they're not running right. And the old control system would just tell you when it's broken. So we can say, hey, you know what? This piece of equipment is cycling every five minutes, and it should be cycling every hour. Now, you down in your office would never feel that. You would never know that. But with our technology now, you can see, oh, this thing is cycling too often. That's consuming energy. It's probably going to break. And then then you'll know something's wrong. And then you'll get an even higher bill. So we have an opportunity not only to make the building run more efficient, but to fix things before they break. And that's always the holy grail out there. Oh, we can do preventative maintenance or we can do predictive maintenance. And, you know, years past, people had talked about that. It was a little smoke and mirrors. Now it's actually true. We can actually find things as we connect to these control systems and trend log the right parameters. And we can find things before they break and save not only tons of energy, save tons of dollars too. So I think in the end, 10 years from now, this podcast, you'll listen to it and go, wow, I always thought they could do this all the time, you know, see smart building dashboards. and But in reality, it's pretty new stuff and not a lot of people have adopted it yet. But I do believe 10 years from now, it'll be the standard thing that's going. So we're all in, we're in into it in a big way. And that's where I see the business being 10 20 30 years from now
3: well and when you say it like that it really sounds like when we're talking about health or like personal health going to the doctor for preventative maintenance or medicine (laughs) versus only being able to go to the emergency room once you've broken a leg or have a heart attack or there's a catastrophic failure somewhere in your body where you're treating something after it happens versus sensing it and taking those measures and doing the blood work and doing those other kinds of things to find problems before they turn catastrophic.
1: That's a great, that's a great analogy. Um, And similar to the car analogy where you you can have the car run down the street, but if you really want to make it perform and win races, then you need a race car mechanic. So we want to be your building's doctor, your race car mechanic, and (laughs) make sure that at least you're not getting fined. You know, we had some customers getting fined by the city of Seattle, and they were just lost at what to do. And we connected them up to the smart buildings platform. And without them having to replace any equipment, we got them to a spot of goodness. And you would never have been able to do it with the old existing control system without the smart buildings dashboard, harvesting all that information. And of course, every building is different. And that's one of the challenges with this is that You just can't plug this in on any building. You do have to customize the programming to decide what you're measuring, how you want to measure it, what distances of the trends you're going to do. Because, you know, buildings are, they're almost like prototypes. if If every building was exactly the same, then we could build a plug-in. It would be much easier, but I don't know if it would be better. I like the custom engineering that Perry's group does. It creates a really collaboration between the building owner and us. To how do we make this building super healthy? How do we make it win races in performance?
2: I'll build on that because uh, I think it's important. It's not the dashboards that identify pending, pending events. So you know, it's like that wearing that stethoscope and having it continuously tell you how, what your heart rate is. That's essentially uh, another way of looking at analytics. And the people that are actually looking at, the doctors that, that Gus is referring to, are smart building analysts. So these are data analysts in the, in the IT world, folks that are looking at data and can see trends in data. We have a operations team that is dedicated to looking at our customers' building data and drawing insights from that data set and then alerting the building operators as well as our service organization that there's a pending uh, heart attack happening. We need to go get this patient in treatment quickly. And so in essence, what what we're doing as a company and what our, you know, it's it's not just the data, it's the people that are looking at the data, which is, you know, I think, Julia, you asked earlier, what what are we doing more today than we have in the past, just to kind of paraphrase. I feel like we're in more of a consultative mode today than we ever have been as an industry. And I know for for a fact here at McDonald Miller with our smart building operations team, that's what we're doing daily uh, with the buildings that we have connected to our smart building analytics infrastructure. We're in more of that consultative advisory type of role and making sure that uh, all the buildings that we're responsible for are running as efficiently as possible.
3: Right that all makes sense too because you guys i mean i know you guys are primarily a mechanical controls contractor but with as much data as you get in you're learning about every single system in the building if i'm correct right yeah and you really get a whole to continue this metaphor (laughs) you really get the whole body or the whole building perspective of how everything and all of these different systems not only make a building work and make a building you know operate to what everybody else experiences on a day-to-day basis but you're looking at everything as a holistic system Mm
1: -hmm.
3: if we're talking about that much data big data what kind of dynamics from a organizational side are you fighting in
2: order to make all of those communications work properly? When you say dynamics, can you help me understand a little bit more what you're referring to with dynamics?
3: Well, the the conflicts between systems or frankly understanding what all of those different pieces of equipment are doing all at once together at the same time?
2: Yeah, there is a learning process, okay? So when we connect to a building system through the building automation system, you know, there's a learning process. So we have to become familiar with that. It's like going to your doctor multiple times, you know, at least once every year or whenever there's an issue arises that's an anomaly, we have to understand those things, right? So we have to create a set of historical patterns and that's fairly easy and, and quick to do, but once we learn that, then we can start looking at that data set as it comes in on a daily basis or hourly basis and start drawing conclusions from it based on the unique characteristics of that device inside that building, as well as all the devices collectively that make up the system. So we are looking at the health of the individual pieces of equipment, as well as the overall health of that the building systems, and that's the information that we share with our customers, as well as uh, information that's at the fingertips of our service technicians that as they go to the building, either as an interval service period, or else as a dispatch call, because there's a critical alarm pending that we need to take care of, that information is at the hands of our service technicians, which which is extraordinarily valuable when, when you're going to a, an emergency that you are trying to uh, triage prior to ever arriving at the, at the scene. And so that's, in essence, what we're capable of doing today, leveraging software analytics and technology to, to make us more effective at our job.
1: Hey, Perry, what kind of uh, patterns are you guys looking at when you're connecting up to a building and learning about it?
2: We quite a few data points. A couple of examples is really, we, you know, in the Northwest, our biggest offender is simultaneous heating and cooling so essentially you got one foot on the accelerator so you're going back to the car analogy now so you got one foot on the accelerator and you're controlling your speed by pushing your foot on the brake right and and that's in essence what's happening you know fairly thematically across all buildings in in the northwest and so being able to look at the data sets and seeing that their systems Based on the sensors, the temperatures in the space, and what the valve positions are of the devices, whether they're variable air volume devices or fan terminal units of some sort, or air handlers serving multiple spaces. But the thermostats or the sensors in the space are too close together. And so when one, one system is saying cool, the other one is saying heat because you're overcooling, and so the two systems are fighting one another and wasting energy. But the, the occupant comfort isn't affected because the two systems are running pretty much full speed. One's in full heat and the other one's in full cool fighting one another. And so this, the occupant still it feels like it's 72 and sunny inside. But at, at the utility meter, you're spending twice as much energy than what you really need to in order to satisfy the 72 degree and sunny you know, indoor environment. And so that one example is probably equivalent to about 10 to 15 percent reduction in energy cost.
3: Is that happening just because of the climate 90% of the time in the Northwest?
2: Yeah, because we have a very moderate climate when you think about it, you know, comparatively to New York City or Florida or Texas or California, where our heating degree days and cooling degree days are fairly moderate. We don't have real extremes. Very few extremes. Obviously, we have the 100-degree days that are anomalies and the below 30-degree days that are also the other extreme of anomaly, but those only occur a few days out of the year, collectively. 98% of the hours in the year that we oftentimes run into a simultaneous heating and cooling scenario. So significant majority of the year is conditions for this wasteful spend.
1: It's also location of the sensors and, and how air distribution's going on. And you can also see how quickly a building cools off at night. And you can, in Perry's example there, it would not have been an alarm on the control yeah. system at all. It was, the building's running fine as far as that's concerned. So this is the difference of a, having a analytics overlay. You can also see, well, you know, we're running 44 degree chilled water temperature. That's how the building was built and designed. But you know what? Maybe it can run okay at 47 degree chilled water and then you can make those adjustments or maybe the condenser water temperature can be changed and how the cooling tower operates. So there's lots of adjustments that can be made. It can save a lot of energy that does not affect the performance of the building. You know, when the buildings are built to heat on the coldest day and cool on the hottest day and then they throw the keys to the building engineer, that's the way it used to be. And then uh, when they got into trouble, they'd call McDonald Miller and we'd pull them out of trouble. And then we'd go away, and they might get into trouble again a few months later. But yeah. now, you know, we can work as a team partner and be that race mechanic or that that doctor on call, the web MD, and taking care of that building all the time. Yeah, yeah, we're we're the
2: energy specialist is the other way of looking at it. So we're that surgeon that's designed to do a particular job, and they do it extraordinarily well. That's our smart building analytics team, and maybe a clear analogy. It's you know smart building analytics software enables us, a service provider like McDonald Miller, to make the invisible visible. Whereas before that example that Gus gave, and I provided with the simultaneous heating and cooling, those things would be very difficult, if not impossible, to detect as a building operator or manager or a service provider just walking into a building. We're looking at the condition of that piece of equipment, not how that equipment is affecting the overall performance of the system. And so that's the power of analytics, and and that's where our industry is at, and will continue to evolve as cloud computing becomes more robust. We begin getting into things such as machine learning and artificial intelligence, where we can start using those technologies in the cloud that are available to us in the cloud to run a higher level of analysis. On a historical data data set, so that we can start drawing more refined conclusions and insights to how can we run that building even more efficiently than what we've already been able to achieve.
3: All right. Well, and that makes a lot of sense too when you're looking at those individual and mass connected data points. Gus, to your point of every single building is different. We're talking about individualized care or individualized service, yep. um, and I just think that that's really interesting that you can make those specific choices and decisions for a building, changing those cooling fluid temperatures and those slight adjustments you can't apply to every single building. So I just thought I'd expand upon that. Julia, you had something to say.
0: You had a couple of bonus thoughts on this. The first one, you know I know as you collect more and more data and you see these trends start to develop, You know, just to play devil's advocate here, I'm just curious if you've thought about this. Like, let's say you you get that thing running really smoothly, really tight, super energy efficient, and you know that building, right? And you have everything kind of dialed in, but then maybe it changes tenants and there's different occupants there with different needs. What's kind of the game plan there, or how do you take all that trending data and then smash it into new occupancy?
1: (laughs) Well, I think... I think it's a really good question, but I would think of it the opposite. And that is, before there were building analytics, the new tenant would move in and things would change and no one would know. Or the tenant would be upset about something and what we would often see is a schedule change, right? And so the building is now running 24-7 to satisfy this one occupant who has a weird schedule and a new use. All the information we've been gathering allows us to continue to tweak and we can see what's going on very easily. Oh, wow, this tenant is using the building in a whole different way. How can we accommodate it? And, uh, and maybe Perry, you've got some real world examples of that. Well,
2: yeah, it, it actually happens daily. I mean, it's not an uncommon occurrence. I mean, you think about how many times space changes in any given commercial office building, especially it's mixed use. You know, it's it happens monthly. And, and so when you start, looking at two, 300 buildings in one day, you can start seeing a sequence of space use changes fairly quickly. And typically that shows up in the data. Mm-hmm. And so when we see those kinds of, hmm, there's a higher energy use intensity for some reason, we ask the question, what mm-hmm. has happened, right? And that is an example of the partnership that we're building with the connected buildings and the people that are responsible for running those buildings and managing them. We're communicating on a very frequent basis, much more frequently today because of smart building analytics than we ever have been historically. And so when we see those kinds of things pop up, and usually it takes about a month, so we usually see them within the first utility bill cycle. And then we ask the question, what prompted this peak in energy consumption? right? So we always compare ourselves to the previous month energy performance. So you're getting the same seasonal corrections uh, month to month. And so that's how we identify those. And then we start a dialogue and trying to figure out why it's different. And it could be different in a positive way or a negative way, right? So the energy use can go up and the energy use can go down. And so we just want to understand and be able to defend why.
1: Yeah. Someone plugs in a little server room and it's needing cooling 24 hours a day that's never happened before. The old way would be someone was supposed to call McDonald Miller and tell him we're putting this in a server room. Now we've got the entire buildings plant running 24/7 to satisfy this server room So you know lots of things can bubble up. I think we've got way more power to deal with that now. I like the fact that we're more of a team member of the building owner versus a oh we got to call McDonald Miller to fix a problem.
0: I think that makes a huge difference. And the second thought I had originally was just before we dive too deep into this, we've talked about smart building analytics. I think the term BAS has been thrown around building automation system and I don't know. We have some of these terms that talk about every single day. And I just, for anyone listening, who's not super familiar with those, just wondering if you could get a, a high level explanation, kind of rundown of smart building analytics and building automation systems and how those tie together. And if one. I
3: could add one EUIs, yes. we, we mentioned the energy use index, learning about it myself and trying to talk about it in a project sense.
1: The energy use index is the uniform measurement of how the building is performing to its peers. So we're not comparing a hospital to an office building or a a school to a theater. We're comparing like-to-like uses, and the energy use index is the energy intensity of that building compared to its peers. And the threshold of where you get fined or not is. Pretty achievable. It's not a super high bar, but you'd be surprised at how far out of whack some of these buildings can get over time. And they are complicated. And sometimes the people that are running the buildings are focused on making the tenants comfortable, and usually not focused on energy efficiency or the EUI. So uh, Perry's the king of, of yeah. acronyms out there, so he can fill out some of the more, some of the other ones. Ah.
2: Yeah, so let me build on what Gus said. So, yeah, energy use intensity or EUI is is really the game changer with the clean building standard. EUIs, the EUI energy use intensity targets for over 300 types of building uses, space uses that is, are part of the rulemaking that Commerce published last year. You know, before climate climate legislation really was just do better, right? Do 10% better than 2010 benchmarks. What this clean building standard did is say, you know, we're going to be black and white now, and so we're going to tell you exactly where the goal line is, and and you're going to have to figure out how you're going to achieve it. Mm -hmm. And and that's what the energy use intensity target does and the rules that came out from the Department of Commerce this past year, because they're the governing agency, enforcement agency, if you will, for the state. The EUI in definition is the amount of total energy consumed in any given year measured in a BTU, British Thermal Unit, divided by the building's gross square footage. So it's amount of energy divided by the gross square footage. So that's the energy use intensity calculation. It gets a bit more complicated than taking this one year's worth of utility bills and data and dividing it by the gross square footage of the building. Because in mixed-use buildings and in most buildings, there's multiple uses of space, as we just talked about previously. And so you have to take those functional uses of space in their ratio of square footage and come up with the overall calculated energy use intensity for that property. And so if you have a commercial office space and your first floor is restaurants... Your EUI target is going to be higher because restaurants are four times higher energy consumers per square foot than is a office space. So you want to take advantage of those high energy use spaces because it helps a building owner ultimately it makes it a little bit easier for them to achieve their overall statutory requirements performance standards. That is, and so so that's the kind of a little bit more granular detail of what an energy use intensity is. I think the best analogy between what's a control system, a building control system, and what is a smart building analytics software platform, it's like the rudder to a boat as a underwater sonar is to a submarine. (laughs) So the analytics being an underwater sonar for a submarine, right? It helps people see what they can't see in the dark underwater, and so that they don't run into a site of boulder or, or some kind of unmovable object, puncture the life safety containment system. But it's whereas a c- control system, it's like the brake in the gas pedal of an automobile, keeping the systems running uh, based on how it's programmed. Doesn't really give you much more insight to the, the Excel for changing temperatures and changing schedules and, and, and some minor functionality on how to change how it's operating day, to, day in, day out. And
3: that's more of the go and the stop versus seeing everything and yeah.
2: the icebergs and all <laughs> that. That's your medical analogy, right? So <laughs> it, 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 it took someone to have high blood pressure for months on end prior to having a heart attack or a stroke. And, and so the analytics is having that someone checking your blood pressure and heartbeat on a continuous basis so that you don't ever have a stroke or a heart attack or at least can go get you medical attention if they start detecting the situation's getting worse. Whereas building control system or building automation system, is just gonna run until you get an alarm? Right. And then once that alarm is, that's a critical event, right? You just, you're, you're in the floor needing someone to give you CPR. Yeah, it's
3: like having a heart monitor installed versus getting your
2: blood pressure yeah, checked. That's, yeah, that, that works.
3: Going back to EUI really quickly because this is something that is hard for my brain to wrap around, especially. When we're talking about total energy intensity, we're talking about everything that consumes energy in a building, correct?
2: It's For our systems, yes. But it really boils down to electricity, and natural gas. And if you're on a district energy system, it'd be like thermal energy, steam or hot water that you're consuming from the district system. But for the most part, All your electricity, as measured by the utility electric meter, and all the natural gas that's measured by the gas company's utility meter.
0: Yeah, and I when I first learned about it a few years ago, for me it wasn't intuitive that a lower number was better because I was used (laughs) to looking at like portfolio manager and a higher score was better. So
3: scores where you have more points, yeah.
0: The way that I finally started to understand like net zero energy is meaning that you're getting down to basically a zero air quotes can't see that on a podcast zero eui if you have enough renewables on site to generate what's left over essentially so you might have like a 20 or 25 and then you can on-site generate that to get to your net zero or your zero energy building so
2: i use the analysis like your golf score you want (laughs) to be as low as possible and that's what you want your eui energy use intensity to be as low as possible because your energy consumption is in the numerator, right? So you want your numerator to be as small as possible. And so that means you wanna consume the least amount of energy uh, as possible.
1: Yeah. You shouldn't have to jump on any uh, on-site renewables and solar to to meet this EUI index that uh, the state is is mandated for your use. However, you bring up something that's interesting and that is that the Washington State Climate Commitment Act is another tailwind of building efficiency that's out there that will continue to change the landscape going forward for decades and, and how we approach building efficiency. And that is putting a price on carbon. So bigger facilities like WSU and aluminum smelters and cement companies and you know big campuses will have a carbon intensity measurement and they will be incented to potentially add some renewables to help them get their carbon footprint down. So we'll see some more of that coming on. Of course, this just came into play and it's not even 12 months ago, right,
2: Perry? This past legislation, the yeah. legislature. November.
1: Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's just starting to pick up speed, but you'll be hearing about that, you know, back to the, the topic of this podcast primarily is about building automation and how we make buildings work better. But, you know, not too far off in the future, I can see this. Climate Commitment Act, moving to off of just huge consumers of energy or carbon and emitters of carbon down to a smaller footprint of maybe buildings that are 200,000 square feet. And then, you know, maybe people want to play around with some solar or some wind or whatnot. So
2: yeah, I, I double down on what Gus just said, because the other part is, is that, you know, why are we picking on buildings, right? But Somebody, I'm sure one of your listeners out there might just be saying, why me? Why my building, right? Why are you picking on me? It, well, because at the end of the day, the reality is buildings are the second largest carbon emitter in the state, number two. And number one is transportation. I'm sure most of your listeners have heard that before, but number two is buildings from carbon emissions from combustion of fossil fuels and running inefficiently. That's all it is. And buildings are the most rapidly growing carbon emitter in the state by a factor of five. So they're quickly catching up. The built environment is quickly catching up to our transportation as being the, the number one carbon emitter in the state. And so I'm going back to some of Gus's opening remarks, but you know, really we can make this fun and easy for building owners And a big part of my day is educating building owners how we can do that because at the end of the day, you have a saving stream that becomes a funding stream for capital investments that you need to make as a building owner. And the sooner you start, the more money you're going to save, the more value you're going to have and the the happier your occupants are going to be because of your early action of, of trying to make your building run better. And so so from that standpoint, there's a lot of forces coming our way, but there are really cool tools and delivery models out there to to be able to harness all the savings and and at the same time being able to guarantee the outcome that you're going to be in compliance with the Clean Building Standard as well as you're going to be under the radar screen of the Carbon Commitment Act as far as being a a major carbon polluter in the state. To
1: just kind of summarize that, in a sense... There are utility rebates and other funding sources to help people make improvements to their buildings that when we go in and we say, okay, we've checked out your building, we've connected up to it. There's some things we can do to make it run better. And we help the building owner grab those utility rebates or pay for performance. And the building owner might say, well, how do we really know we're going to get those rebates? And we'll say, we guarantee the results. If they don't happen, write you a check so putting your money where your mouth is and that's the commitment we have to make the buildings work better
3: we love it we love it i have i have two points that i'm mentioning the first so we don't forget it we're mostly talking about existing buildings correct
1: a lot of new buildings need to be adjusted but yes
3: i want to make sure we come back to the topic of new construction as well but before we before we get there i have another playing devil's advocate thing here, mostly because it's very near and dear to our location. But we've talked about EOI, we've talked about big data, we've talked about these buildings needing to clean up their act, for lack of a better word. What do you do when you don't have that data, or you don't have the metrics in order to make that big data make sense for existing buildings?
1: Well, I mean, we can always give advice. I mean, we didn't always have big data and, you know, we can look at the type of building they have and we're going to have the EUI that's mandated by law. You know, Perry can take a look at it with his deep professional judgment and say, this building is running poorly. Mm -hmm. And if we do some things, it should run beneath the penalty level EUI index. And we can start making recommendations off of that by walking around and putting our hands on it. But, you know, if we have big data now, we have with the ability to connect up, it's kind of like fighting with one hand tied behind your back. So
2: just to build on what Gus said, <laughs> our analytics is not going to be the right treatment for every building, especially if you have buildings such as some of our major institutions, universities, that is, and, and colleges, as well as schools, K-12, right? They still have quite a bit of old pneumatic systems. Well, you're not going to be able to hook a piece of software up to a pneumatic, a mechanical control system um, that's running off of compressed air. And so, but most all those buildings have a utility meter. And they do have mechanical systems, HVAC systems. And so it's a more labor intensive exercise. But we can get to the same outcomes by looking at how much energy that building or the cluster of buildings, if it's a master metered situation like in many campus installations. But we can take the aggregate of the total square footage buildings that are part of that master meter and and still come up with similar conclusions. it just be more labor intensive because it's a manual process. And we have a tool called a utility report card that helps us look at that data. And correct it for weather anomalies, space use anomalies, as well as run hour deviations. And so we can we can put some higher level engineering to some basic data sets, and still help building owners achieve compliance with the clean building standard.
0: Yeah, I think that where we're coming from this side of things, I think part of the challenge and. You know, some legislation, you know, with, with any legislation, you're going to have kind of good things and then bad things, which might be unintended consequences. But I think part of the struggle we're, we're realizing here is you said, you know, there is the option for the aggregated data and in a campus situation. But like, for instance, here, there are a lot of buildings that are not metered. And mm-hmm. so there's a struggle trying to figure out, can we actually meet this requirement or not? You know, a lot of buildings here are in deferred maintenance and budget. There's it's a whole hot mess. So, just trying to figure out how to even get to that EUI metric and then ASHRAE level two audits and other things like that that are required without having the funding to get up to that level, it's a bit of a barrier where you could be spending that money on capital improvements that would get you to to a more sweet spot in that EUI. You're then having to divert a lot of that money to then even install the meters or do the audits in the first place. So I don't know, I guess it'd be fun to get into a conversation about like, okay, first of all, we should define what this bill, this new law actually is. Mm -hmm. So that's number one, since we're going down that, that path. And then number two, like, you know, what are the good things about it? And what are maybe the challenges that we could turn into
3: opportunities? Right. And I feel this is a personal observation about this dynamic we have going here specifically. But when you take one step forward with having the information, whether that's doing those level two audit, whether that's installing meters or breaking up meters, submetering between shared meters of buildings or, you know, we have buildings here that are not at all similar or similar use, but they're all metered together for some reason, or even just fixing controls, taking it from pneumatic to digital. And you're taking one step forward, getting that information, but financially and you know, leverage-wise for doing other things or making progress, you're taking a couple steps back.
2: Well, my counter argument to that is that this work should have been done years ago. And so you know, <laughs> you know, it goes back to some of the opening remarks, Gusta. We've never ha- had a reason to really capitalize or prioritize this capital spend. So we've been running our buildings and, and managing our infrastructure irresponsibly for decades. So right. now with the legislation in place, we're having to actually pay attention now and prioritize where we spend our capital dollars. And it's, it's painful. Don't get me wrong, WSU is just one of many institutions that are facing this this challenge, but we have to buckle down and make it a priority to run our buildings responsibly if we want to affect climate change. And so buildings are a polluter, a carbon emitter. And so we can't manage what we can't measure. And if our metering infrastructure is delinquent, and we've allowed it to be delinquent over the years, we need to fix it. And because ultimately, long term, it's going to pay for itself not only in energy costs, because now we can actually manage that building responsibly, but it's also going to help us because it's going to reduce the impact of that building on climate change and and the effects of our population that live around Pullman, in this case, or wherever the building's located. So I hear you, I'm empathetic, but we got to start doing something different.
3: Right. Well, and Gus's analogy earlier of kicking the can down the street, it's almost <laughs> like we tried to kick it to the end zone where we thought the goalpost was, but the goalpost is a lot it closer.
2: Moved. To that. That's <laughs> been a big part. You know, we as executive team here at McDonald Miller made a decision back in fourth quarter of 20. When we mm-hmm. saw this legislation coming down the pike and it was actually had legs to get adopted, we made it this a cor- the climate building standard at corporate initiative. Because we saw this was going to be really painful for many of our customers, so we've been working on this communication and education circuit for over a year now. Because mm-hmm. of Gus's leadership as CEO of McDonald Miller, and so we're doing our job to get the word out to help people get ahead of this obligation, this responsibility, as fast as possible, so we can work together to mobilize the funds it doesn't have to come from legislature. There could be third-party funders that the state could be, if the state's willing to entertain, there's money on the sidelines ready to invest in these initiatives that could be a true public private partnership for the state to consider so that we're not just burdening our taxpayers.
1: I still see when I'm in Bowman in the winter, I see windows open and some of those buildings running with steam. And uh, that's, that's a good indicator that We kicked the can too far down the road because energy was super cheap, you know, 20 years ago, and it's still pretty inexpensive and global warming wasn't an issue and all of this climate tailwind to this issue. So Perry's right. It is painful. I wish it wasn't as painful, but there's a lot of money being wasted already. and That is that the money that's being wasted, if we can capture that money by making the building more efficient, that'll help ease the pain.
2: Yeah,
3: definitely. And we're working on the occupant side as well. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we're working on those windows too. Yeah, we are. Yeah, definitely. So, I mentioned that we should talk a little bit about new construction, how these buildings can be set up for success if things change in the future, or if these metrics get even tighter and more, mm-hmm. the goalpost moves closer in the future. Do you guys yeah. have any thoughts
1: on that? I think uh, new buildings are easier. There's always a choice between good, better, and best when you're designing. And we're in a very powerful spot because we're designing the mechanical systems and talking to the owners before the building is even designed. We're on the design team, helping them choose between good, better, and best systems. You know, the the better system is probably ultra-efficient and the good system probably meets energy code, maybe just barely, and then how is the building going to be used and, and what are the criteria? Are they building the building to sell it or is it an occupied building like a hospital or is it an office building that's going to be leased out to tenants? All these things require different kinds of systems and different decisions to be made. And the fact that we are designing the control system as well and the mechanical system, we have really good custody of what that building's performance is going to be and its EUI rating is going to be even before it's built. And we can show that. And you can also get energy rebate dollars in the design. There's grants and, and incentives to make the building more efficient in the design phase. And then, what we're doing with all our new construction jobs is we're attaching the building analytics dashboard that hasn't been required yet in any new construction job that I've seen, probably be coming soon to a building near you, but we're attaching that free of charge so we can help tune that building during its warranty phase. And we can actually do some things through the building analytics dashboard and test the building's system operation in a way that's more efficient for our commissioning. You know, when I mentioned that a new building will be tested for maximum heat, maximum cool, and then throw the keys to the building operator, we're trying to be the man left behind and be there for that new owner and say, okay, hey, we're not just throwing you the keys. You've paid us to build the building. We're running down this road. We're here as the man left behind with our analytics dashboard, helping you tweak and run that building. So all those decisions come home to roost. And, and you know, if, if you're the person who's designed it, built it, and commissioned it, then there's no place to run. We've got full accountability for the performance of that building. And no one we can blame and we want that accountability. A lot different in some buildings where you've got someone has designed it, someone else has built it, and someone else has commissioned it. And then if it's not running quite right two years from now, well whose fault is it? Right? Is, is it the engineer? Is it the person running the building, taking care of it, twisting the knobs? Is it the, the architect? Whose fault is it? You know, so if it's not running right and we've done the job, then there's only one place to go.
2: And the other thing is the Washington State Energy Code and the other, you know, like Seattle Energy Code drive a lot of the requirements. The most recent, it's pending adoption is the 2021 Washington State Energy Code. And it already is aligning with all the existing building legislation that's in place. It is incorporating no new use of fossil fuel as a heating source. So it's already got that requirement in there. And it also impacts retrofits, major retrofits. So the requirements this from an energy code perspective will drive a lot of the mechanical HVAC and building technology decisions that, as Gus said, um, are a little bit easier to manage because you're starting from a clean sheet of paper and not something that was built 10, 20, 30, sometimes 100 years ago. And so that's where you're going to see complementary code, if you will, or legislation in place is through the Washington State Energy Code and uh, subsequent jurisdictional energy codes that go further than uh, Washington State. And that's happening with Seattle, right? So, what the city of Seattle is doing with the building performance standards and their energy code is very much what Washington State has a pending adoption for the 2021 energy code for Washington State.
3: As far as guess you mentioned you guys really are with the building for the lifetime of the building, correct?
2: So, if, if, allowed.
3: <laughs> if allowed. So what do you guys do when it comes to grid interactability of these buildings, especially in the newer ones where you
2: have that granularity of control? Oh, I'll
1: have to defer to Perry on that.
2: Okay. Oh, you know, grid interactive efficiency or grid interactive buildings, the virtual utility plant is the other way. If you talk to folks at Department of Energy loan office, they are investing in the virtual energy plant or virtual utility plant. And so all of those are all very, you know, it's basically connecting in an aggregate format the buildings to our power grid and doing that in a smart and dispatchable way. And so that includes, you know, even not only the building systems, but also the electric vehicle infrastructure that could be part of that building. How do we harness the opportunity to timeshare, if you will, charging or else discharging if the grid needs instantaneous power? And so that is a big part. We actually endeavored now, it's, Gus correct me, if about five years ago, we stood up a program with Snohomish County PUD to get into this and we created a fully funded energy savings uh, as a service type of relationship and working with the transmission side of Snohomish PUD to be able to connect buildings to the management of their electrical infrastructure. We never got to magnitude of size to be able to do the latter piece, but the infrastructure and the technology is in place to be able to adapt to a grid interactive building. To type scale as soon as we get more buildings signed up on the program, so that we can get to that five megawatt worth of dispatchable load. So, you know, definitely involved in that. That's been over five years now that we've been working with Snohomish County. But we're looking for opportunities to do any, any more of that because smart building analytics, the stuff that we're talking about here, the software platforms that we're using to aggregate buildings and help building owners run their buildings better. It's the same platform that would connect to the utility grid to be able to have that interactive communications.
1: So you're saying that if you had buildings connected to the grid, there would be some that would be authorized to turn off? Okay, whatever the situation is, right? Right, that's what you're talking about. And then also, I've got my vault plugged in right behind here. They might decide to suck the energy right out of my vault. Yep. Wow.
2: Right time, or else, or else, stage when it's charging. So instead of everyone getting to work at nine o'clock in the morning or eight o'clock in the morning and plugging their electric vehicle into the charger, the having grid interactive communications will stage those charging over time. So you're not having to start another uh, power plant, fossil fuel plant, to be able to handle the instantaneous demand.
1: Well, ten years from now, everyone's going to be driving electric cars, so it's going to be probably necessary to do that. We're talking about our
2: deferred maintenance and lows of our past when it comes to the metering infrastructure previously. Well, you we start thinking about the adoption of electric vehicles and what that means to our electric grid. It's another major topic that utility companies and NEA and others, and Rocky Mountain Institute, Pacific Northwest National Laboratories, there's a lot of smart people that see this big Goliath coming down the pike and their tsunami. That we have to get in front of and grid interactive buildings is one solution.
3: Yeah, and sorry for kind of throwing that at you left field there, but when you're talking about Washington State Energy Code and electrification of buildings specifically, I was hoping that you would reach where we just did. So <laughs> that was great.
2: <laughs> What's nice is that I think DOE, they have billions of dollars and loan, guaranteed loans, to be able to invest in this topic. And so, you know, their smallest loan is like $75 million. One of that is the virtual power plant. So they're really wanting uh, the Pacific Northwest to rise to the opportunity and be a test pilot, if you will. a demonstration project is a better term, a demonstration project for the nation to have this virtual power plant concept test it, and validate it as a viable path forward. So working with a PSE or an Avista or a Snowput or a SCL equivalent is something that we're actively engaged in and looking for those that are willing to go to a district-level, utility-scale-level demonstration project.
1: You know, it occurs to me that, you know, Seattle and in Washington in general has been growing dramatically, and we've been actually able to do it within the existing power plant production in the Northwest, in fact, we've been shutting down some coal plants and decommissioning a few dams here and there. The low-hanging fruit seems to be LED lights. The fact that all our lights are turning to LED and not those hot incandescent has been a really wonderful piece of energy that's been able to be put back to use to fuel the expansion of our communities here. But that stuff is kind of used up. The LED it's not totally used up, but that's low-hanging fruit. As we move on To the future, to have enough power to run these cars and and run the growth of the Northwest, we have to get these buildings running more efficiently. And that's a huge tailwind to this effort is like, hey, find all the buildings that are running inefficiently because we're going to need that power for new people that are coming into the Northwest and electric cars. Well, that
3: was a great bookend. Yeah, that was, I think that was wonderful. Do either of you guys have some final thoughts or final sentiments that you think are important to share here? And then we can kind of wrap up.
1: No, I think I'm, I'm good. You can't kick the can down the street forever, but we can make it fun and easy to fix your building up. So just give me or Perry a call and we'll hook you up. Can't top that one.
0: (laughs) Great. So many good metaphors and so many good t-shirt ideas through this whole conversation. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you both for joining us and you're doing a lot of great stuff over at McDonald Miller and
3: we're lucky to have gotten a chance to talk to you.
1: Likewise. Go Cougs. Go Go Cougs. Cougs.
3: Well, thank you again, Gus. And thank you again, Perry. We appreciate your time. Thank
1: you. Thanks. Thanks. See you guys.
0: Bye. Thank you to Nia and their Better Bricks program for sponsoring these
2: podcasts.